This morning we are find ourselves in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, and I invite you to turn there with me today. Daniel chapter 7. Were the Mayans right? That's the question that many people are still asking today because this is the year when supposedly their calendars come to an end. And considering they planned those calendars out hundreds of years beyond the existence of their own civilization, people are wondering why do they stop at 2012. And of course, anybody who can smell a whiff of public interest and desires to make money will latch on to just about anything. Uh, and so we have movies and we have books and we have some serious and we have some fictional, all of them highlighting this sense of apocalyptic doom that is supposedly being foreshadowed in this Mayan calendar. As one person has said, I am not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, uh, and I work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm with reasonable confidence can say, forget about the Mayans, all right? If for no other reason than it's now coming out that the people who said, 2012 was the end date actually got that wrong nevertheless this morning what we do want to see is a foreshadowing of the true apocalypse the true apocalypse in fact this morning as we continue our series in daniel uh, we get this vision of the true coming apocalypse through a vision a dream that is given to him and in fact, chapter 7 marks a turning point, a hinge point in the book of Daniel, where we move from the kind of straightforward historical narrative now into an accounting of the, the apocalyptic visions and dreams that Daniel himself has given about the coming future and eternal kingdom uh, to be revealed for, to everyone um, that God has given to him. And so, though Daniel has been the interpreter of dreams for others, now he is forced to interpret dreams that he himself is given. And this section is full, chapter 7 of the rest of the book, is full of what scholars call apocalyptic literature. And typically when we talk about the apocalypse today, we're talking about something, we're talking about the end of time. We're talking about something that is coming to the end. And that's not too far off when it comes to how the Bible is describing these things as well. In both visions and dreams, God is giving a vision of the future, what is about to take place, one where the present spiritual conflict and struggle of this world goes away in light of an everlasting peace that he himself brings about. Yet it's the way this message that is displayed that can cause us problems because this, this vision, these dreams have amazing uh, symbols and imagery, scenes where hybrid animals and personified nature is symbolically revealing deeper truths. And many Christians can uh, either be scared off by that or go wrong in their understanding because it's frankly hard to grasp sometimes. It's hard to make sense of what is going on. I've shared with some of you that for about the last year and a half or so, I have been captivated by the game of rugby. And I, I knew of its existence, but it wasn't until uh, a while back that uh, it was a, kind of a lazy uh, Sunday afternoon after we'd had some long event here and the kids were asleep. I was half asleep, Melinda was half asleep, and we're just flipping through the stations and we come across one of the PBS stations and there's these guys uh, running around looking like they're killing themselves. And I'm like, what is this? And I see the rugby ball. Like, this is rugby. And there's nothing else on uh, and except for some boring sports, which I won't mention for, the, for you, some of your sake. <clears throat> So, but no, I'm just, I'm just teasing. Uh, uh, that was a golf swing for those listening on the recording. Uh, 
And, and you're watching, and there's, there's these guys running around that are built like the Incredible Hulk, constantly running, running, running like soccer players, bashing into each other, knocking each other down, tackling, chucking this ball back and forth. There's no flags. There's no timeouts. There's seemingly no rules. I have no idea what's going on, but I'm utterly captivated by it. I'm like, I love this thing. I don't understand the thing that's going on. And part of the problem was it, was it was coming beamed out of Australia. So like every fourth or fifth word is some code word. I have no idea what it means. And some people, when it comes to apocalyptic literature, they feel the same way. If you have any sense of an imagination, if you love Lord of the Rings, you read this stuff and you're like, this is great. This is great. And you're like, what does it mean? I have no idea. But I just love, I love the kind of literature. And it's important that we, we come to some kind of understanding about it. Otherwise, we're either going to, again, just say, I don't know, I don't know what this means, so I'm going to just gonna skip it. It's God's word. We can't skip it. It is there both for those who originally received it, and it is for our good as well and our encouragement even to lead us to faith in Christ. Furthermore, if we don't understand how to interpret it correctly, then we will go off the rails and become those that make all kinds of insane predictions about when the end of time is going to come or misunderstand our role in God's church and in God's economy in the present day. The reality is this kind of literature is meant to teach us enduring spiritual truths through vivid imagery and symbolism. And if we come to be educated and encouraged by this literature about the ways of God, what we will see at the end is the big picture, the big message of all this kind of literature, and that is this. God is sovereign and he wins in the end. And that message is supposed to inspire within God's people hope and confidence for the future. So it doesn't matter if the world is falling apart, if your life is falling apart, if you are staring death in the face, you have hope and confidence for the future because God is still on the throne. And in fact, that is the message that Daniel himself is given today and what we want to see as we look to Daniel chapter 7 this morning. So I invite you to follow along with me as we begin reading in verse 1. Daniel chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things." As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. May God bless the reading of his word. What did Daniel learn from the vision? What did he learn and how did it affect his life? These are important for us to understand if we want to have our own lives changed this morning. And so as we walk through this passage, what we will see is that Daniel is given a first-hand glimpse of the spiritual realities that lay behind his everyday existence in this earth. And in seeing these scenes of spiritual reality, we come to understand that Daniel came to understand that though kingdoms and nations raise against God, he still reigns over them all. And it's the stability of God's reign as the ancient of days, as the one who was and is and is to come, that Daniel himself can have stability in his life. He can have hope for the future and confidence for the present. And my prayer for us is that by looking at Daniel 7 this morning, 
we will likewise come to find stability and a vision of God that Daniel himself had. So that our hope will be in the future and our confidence will be in him in the present as well. That we will go away just as changed as Daniel was by this vision. So three things that we need to understand this morning. Three things. First is this, the reality of spiritual conflict. The reality of spiritual conflict. In the early chapters of Daniel, God gave him the ability to interpret dreams of great kings, but now he himself has this dream that needs to be interpreted. And what a vision it is. What in the world are all these animals? What does the vision mean? First of all, it's clear that these beasts represent kings and kingdoms, and the descriptions of the beasts are meant to tell us something of the description of the kingdom. So as D.A. Carson explains, the lion combined with the eagle suggests dominion as well as speed and strength. The brown Syrian bear that's mentioned may weigh up to 600 pounds in real life and has a voracious appetite, all of which is envisioned here to the kind of reign and kingdom that would have been known in history. The leopard, known for its extraordinarily sudden and rapid attacks, has four heads showing it to be predatory in all directions at the same time, wanting dominion everywhere among the earth. The last beast is said to be terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Furthermore, this imagery of horns represents kings or kingdoms of dominion. This beast has ten of them, five times more than any natural animal with just two horns. Now, what are these kingdoms? Well, most likely, it is a, a, a repeat of the vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had of these four great empires. And so Daniel's being shown the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires, just as he had seen through the previous Babylonian king's vision. But notice that though these are real kingdoms, they point beyond themselves as well. Isn't it interesting that even today, nations are represented by animals? We have the, the Chinese dragon, the Russian bear, the American eagle, all of these Things continue on, as it were, through the ages as countries and nations are described even the same way that we have today. Likewise, Daniel see these beasts where he describes them coming up out of the sea, being stirred up by the four winds. In the Bible, the sea is often pictured as a source of chaos and sin. Likewise, the four winds speak to, as it were, the four corners of the earth, a, a global phenomenon. In other words, though these are specific historical kingdoms, they are also representative of all kingdoms throughout time as they oppose God and his people. So even when the angel answers Daniel's request and explains the fourth kingdom more, what we get is very vague. He doesn't actually name it. He doesn't say what exactly it is. What does he say? He just says the fourth beast means there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. Then it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. Another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. So what is this fourth kingdom? Well, I think in 
it's very likely that God is envisioning for Daniel a king named Antiochus IV, who was a Roman ruler who laid siege to Israel about 150 years before Jesus was born. His goal was to wipe out of existence the Jewish people. He made it illegal for them to keep the Sabbath or to own the scriptures. He tried to kill off the priesthood. He even went so far as to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and desecrate it by offering pigs on the altar. What, I mean, just think a Jewish mind. What worst thing could you possibly do for them and their worship of God? And yet, and yet the description is also vague enough that it need not just be Antiochus. Though Antiochus waged war against God's people in a way that was unprecedented before this, he was not the only Antiochus that was to come. We can look through history and see echoes of Antiochus waging war against God's people among all the nations, not just Israel, but the church. And so you have the Apostle John writing in 1 John 2 saying this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have already come. What was envisioned here is not just a literal king who came and sought to wipe out the people of God, but also a future king, Antichrist himself, who will seek to wage war on the church and seek to destroy them. And what we need to understand is what Daniel showed in this vision and throughout the book is this, nations are not neutral before God. Nations are not neutral before God. It's not like you say, well, it doesn't, you know, it's the people. No, no, no. As political entities as well as ethnic people groups, the nations are opposed to God. In fact, Satan himself can stand behind nations and use their power and resources to rage against God and his people, sometimes even in incredibly vicious ways, sometimes in not so vicious ways, just in subtle irritating ways think about our own culture think about government offices corporate structures the entertainment culture the educational environment in our nation all of these things stand directly opposed to god and the worldview that is presented there and these influential areas of our country to openly profess faith in christ and to actually live with him as lord is to invite rejection and mockery by peers. It is to intentionally put yourself out of sync with everyone else. The only thing that is not tolerated in our society of tolerance is the intolerance that says Jesus alone is Lord and King. And so if you say that, you are ostracized by the community. It's worse though in countries like China and the Sudan and Saudi Arabia and North Korea and Myanmar and India. There, God is more severely challenged. There, his people are openly persecuted, imprisoned, and killed. Not even in the framework of governmental and political systems. So that happens, sometimes they're just dragged out of their homes and shot in the street or even beheaded. Even today, the beastly nations of Daniel's vision are on the prowl and they are raging against the one true God. As Christians, we must understand this reality. That culture and society is not somehow morally neutral. They exist under the leadership of Satan and demonic forces and therefore wage war not just against God, but also his people. And so in many ways, God's people live as a marked people. 
The enemy of our souls has identified us and is ready to pounce on us in any way that we can, that he can. And yet knowing that, knowing that needs to be tempered by knowing something else. Not just the reality of spiritual conflict, but also this, the power of a sovereign Lord. The power of a sovereign Lord. This is what Daniel was seeing. Look at verse 9. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fire with fiery flames. His wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. In contrast to the wickedness of the nations, Daniel sees the Lord himself. Notice how he is described. First of all, he is the ancient of days. What's happened to these other kingdoms and these rulers? They, they live, they exist, they rule, and then they die and they go away. Not God. Not God. His throne never goes away. His kingdom never ends. He is the ancient of days, the eternal one. We've seen nation devouring nation. We've seen them uh, doing so in wickedness and cruelty. But here is God who reigns in justice and purity and holiness. The other nations are characterized by sin, but his clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames issuing forth judgment on the peoples. And then we read that he is surrounded by this uh, uncountable, as it were, uh, army of servants and followers in the heavenly court, angelic beings who are there to do his will. Now, if we were, and, and if we were seeing this as, as, as a movie... You, you have, as it were, uh, lining up on the field of battle all of these other kingdoms envisioned by these monstrous creatures coming against God. And then it says, the thrones were set out as if on the field of battle all of these servants come and they, and they begin setting up these thrones. And then the Ancient of Days comes and sets his throne as if to say, come get some. I, I, I'm ready for you. And though your thrones are weak and temporary, mine lasts eternally. And you would think there would be this great cosmic conflict. There would be this amazing battle. That doesn't happen at all. This is why it's never been filmed as a movie. It's a complete disappointment. I mean, I mean what, what, what happens? This hideous beast comes forth. It's got metal fangs and bronze claws. And it's just raging fury at God. And he just issues a command and it's gone. Skewered, the body then dragged off to be burned by the flames. Again, a terrible movie. It's easily climactic. Imagine Godzilla trampling through Tokyo and Peter the Rabbit comes up with his basket of eggs and says, I'm here to stop you. Poor Peter doesn't stand a chance. He's just stomped on and he's tolent for Godzilla all of a sudden. And such is the point here. No one can stand against God. He is, he is the eternal one. He is the holy one. He is the sovereign king who reigns over everything. So to come against him is not only wicked and rebellious, it is inherently foolish. Who would presume to stand against him? But then notice what else Daniel says. He says, I saw in the night vision, verse 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Now the phrase son of man in part is just a way of saying a human being. 
there's a way to contrast the beastly and inhuman kingdoms that Daniel has seen. He says, now a son of man enters the picture. And we know this because when you read other prophetic books, like Ezekiel, God contrasts himself with the human prophet. I am divine, and you are simply a son of man. You are made of the dust of the earth and shall return there. And so you have these disgusting beings, these beasts that are there, and suddenly a man appears before Daniel. But it's not like a man he's ever seen before. He comes into God's presence, and what does he do? God hands the reins of his eternal kingdom over to this man, granting him dominion, which is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and a kingdom that is one that will never be destroyed. Furthermore, this man came from the heavenly clouds. He came from heaven himself. More than that, he receives, the Bible says, belongs only to God, the worship of humanity. And Daniel sees that not only worship him, they serve him. In fact, he says all peoples, nations, and languages are to serve him because he has been given the eternal kingdom of the ancient of days. Who is the Son of Man? Here's the staggering reality that you are more blessed than Daniel is. Though Daniel has amazing experiences, you are more blessed because while he is envisioning the Son of Man and wondering, who in the world could this man be? Who could be this magnificent being who who stands like me as flesh and blood and yet is given all of the privileges of God himself? We stand on this side of redemptive history. And so when we come to the New Testament, we see it as clear the Son of Man is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who came from the clouds in the glory of full deity and took on the flesh of full humanity. He is the one who triumphed over his enemies, not by waging war with the sword, but by dying humbly on a cross and rising again, exalted as the Lord of all things to whom God has handed over the eternal dominion. As the Son of Man, Christ not only defeats the enemies of God, He triumphs over our own rebellious hearts. He conquers the power and the penalty of sin so that when we turn to faith in Him, we need not fear judgment like these other nations. We are brought into the company of His eternal dominion so that all the nations of the earth, all of the power, all that exists to be ruled over will in fact be given to us as His people. Though killed in this life, in the life to come, the people under the reign of the Son of Man will experience victory and joy and life with Him. Christ alone has the everlasting kingdom and is one that goes with us, before us, and ultimately defeats our enemies. It is no surprise then that when given our most basic command to go and give disciples, it comes with this promise and foundation. Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. From this chapter, we have seen the reality of spiritual conflict. We have seen in contrast to that, the power of a sovereign God. Now we need to see the response of faithful living. The response of faithful living. How are these truths supposed to affect us? How should they cause us to live differently than we do now? Notice what Daniel says at the end of the chapter. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. 
Now, if you woke up from a dream like that, can you blame the guy? I mean, I, I had a mildly bad dream last night, and I woke up uh, a little off kilter and balanced and kind of looking over my shoulder. I can't imagine having the kind of dream that Daniel has, where it's not just like he's seen it on a film. He is in the presence of this. He smells, he smells the smoke from the flame. He feels its heat. He sees the blinding glory so much so that he can kind of pull on the garment of one of these 10,000, 10,000 who serve and says, hey, can you tell me what's going on here? Because all of it's happening around him. And so he says, here is the end of the matter. I was greatly alarmed. My color changed, but I kept it in my heart. The vision unsettles him. It scares him, and yet... And yet he also continues to think about it. He keeps it in his heart, meaning he, he ponders it and wonders, what does this mean? And what we know from the book of Daniel is that he does more than just wonder about it. He allows the realities of what he has seen to affect how he lives. Did you catch what chapter 1 verse 7 said? It tells us when the vision took place. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in the bed. What does that mean? That means you've got to rewind the tape to know where this comes. This is not after chapter 6. This comes between chapter 4 and chapter 5 and 6. This is happening while he's in exile under this other king, Belshazzar. What happens in chapters 5 and 6? Well, if you've been around here for the last couple of weeks, you know. If you haven't, I'll summarize by saying, even in the face of death, Daniel was faithful to God. In chapter 5, King Belshazzar uh, is having this feast. He's partying, and he asks that the vessels of gold and silver that he's, uh, his uh, predecessor has taken captive from Jerusalem be brought so that he can feast with them. He is not just denigrating God by the fact that they stole from the temple, but now he's further denigrating him by using his vessels to drink in honor of a false god. As soon as he puts the cup to his lips, this divine vision of a hand appears out of nowhere and begins scratching, burning into the wall, flaming words of judgment. And he calls in Daniel and says, tell me what this means. And Daniel's got a choice. He reads the words, God lets him know this is what it means, and it is not good news for Belshazzar. It means death and the end of his kingdom, and he's got a choice. He can say, uh, I don't know, because haven't you ever heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger? Where do you think that comes from? They used to shoot the messenger. They get bad news, they don't like it, off of his head. But he didn't, it doesn't matter, I don't want to hear bad news. That's the threat before Daniel, but guess what? It's God's word doesn't matter. I have confidence in him. So he tells him fearlessly, this is what the message is. And in fact, it comes true that very night. Chapter 6, Daniel's in his 70s. The king Darius has made Daniel a high official in the court. But Darius is also passing edict that says everyone who worships in the kingdom must worship through him alone for 30 days. What does Daniel do? He fearlessly prays, not once, not twice, but three times, just as he's always done, even under threat of death. Where does a man in his 70s get the courage to stand against kings like that? To stare into the face of raging beasts who want nothing more than to devour him and joyfully obey the living God. Daniel was able to live faithfully even in the face of death because he received this vision. This vision that said there is a spiritual conflict that is going on, but your God is sovereign over all. God has shown him the spiritual realities, but he's also shown him himself. A vision as the ancient of days, the exalted king who stands sovereign over all things. And he has shown him the future. 
the coming Son of Man who will put to an end all rebellion and give to God's people an everlasting kingdom of blessing and security and peace. And so believing that those things are true, Daniel can have courage in the face of anything that those raging beasts would come bringing before him. Daniel could remain faithful to his God. So again, we ask, what about us? What about us? Now the Son of Man has come for the first time. And he has struck the final blow in a war by offering his own life as a sacrifice for sin and being raised up triumphant over every rebellious power in this life and the spiritual realities that lie behind it. He calls us to follow after him in faith. And when we put our faith in him and follow him, it means death. It means death. You know, even now when we fly these days, you have to give out just about everything, including your dignity, as they take pictures of you that you prefer not to be taken. You stand in line, you have to take off your shoes, you have to take off your belt, so you're standing in your sock feet and a cold floor holding your pants up, dropping all this stuff into buckets, dropping off a cell phone, dropping off your wallet, and they wand you down, taking pictures, okay, get dressed and get your stuff and get out of here. It's a little, a little demoralizing. But some of us think about serving God that way. We kind of stand before God and we begin handing things over to Him. We say things like, Lord, here's my job. I'll serve you well there. Help me be a good witness. Or we hand over our marriage, as it were, and we say, God, here's my marriage. Help me be a faithful, loving spouse that honors you. Or we pull out our car keys and we say, God, here's my car. I know I only have it by your grace, and so if somebody needs a ride to church or needs to borrow it, I'll be glad to do it. And all the while, God is kind of patiently smiling, thanking us, and yet at the end, he says, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. Why? Because Jesus said, Son of Man said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, Jesus said, if you're going to follow after me and be a part of my kingdom, you need to die. You need to be willing to die to yourself. So God is not satisfied as we, as we empty our pockets and maybe are really spiritual and actually lay our wallet down and say, God, the money is yours. No, he says, you crawl up on that altar and you lay your whole body out and you allow yourself to die. Die to your desires, die to your wants, die to your sinful ambitions. And you put yourself fully at my disposal. Why is that such a difficult thing to do? Because it requires faith. As long as we are holding on to the reins of our life, the totality of it, then we feel as if we're in control. But the moment we crawl ourselves up on that altar, like a willing Isaac, and we say, God, I'm yours, we are handing over control from our life to him. And we're saying, now you're in control. And if that means I walk out of here and in 30 seconds I'm plowed over by a bus, I trust that it's a good thing for my family, for my friends, for your church, for your glory. If I get sick and die, if my kids get sick and die, if any imaginable thing as well as so many good things happens, I trust I trust that it was good for me, it was good for my family, it was good for your church, and it was good for your glory. That requires faith. But notice what God does. He says, I am worthy of that faith. 
Because unlike the other sinful nations, I reign in holiness. Unlike those who will be cruel to you and wage war against you, I love you and have given my own son for you. Those who are temporary and we cannot put our trust in, he says, I exist forever as the ancient of days. So to die to ourselves and to give ourselves over to God is not the height of foolishness. It is not the most fearful thing to do. It is in fact the most wise and assured thing we can do. Because when we trust our lives, the ancient of days, we realize we are giving it over to God himself. And therefore, we can be assured that the only thing that will come to us is eternal joy. This week, I heard about an old article in Time magazine. It was about Moody Bible College in Chicago, which used to be in a pretty rough neighborhood, apparently. And one time, a student uh, was either coming or going from classes in the evening, and this guy jumped out with a knife and and um, wanted his money. And the student looked at him and said, what are you doing, threatening me with heaven? Get out of here. And just kept walking. And apparently the guy just had no, it just didn't know what, he didn't know what to say to that. And so he, he left. He walked away scratching his head. You know, all of us every day face a decision. Not necessarily to be the smart aleck in the face of death, but are we going to fall to the whims and the threats of spiritual forces of darkness that wage against our souls, are we going to put our confidence in God? Are we going to love the, the sinful values and culture of this world? Or are we going to seek the everlasting kingdom of the Son of Man? Will we more faithfully serve our neighbors and our friends and our own sinful hearts? Or will we faithfully serve the King who died to bring us to God? Will we remember passages like this that show us there is a higher throne, than above all the thrones and kingdoms of this world? Or will we seek to establish our own throne? Will we remember the ancient of days who exercises judgment on all nations? Will we remember Jesus who died on the cross to bear our guilt and our shame and our sins? Will we remember Jesus who rose again to glory and was to get given universal dominion and reign? We walk around fearful of anything and everything in this life and in the world? Or will we trust those things over to God and put our faith in Him? Will we live with confidence and joy as we faithfully serve our King, regardless of the consequences, remembering that He will forever be with us as King of kings and Lord of lords? Or will we fail? Because we cannot find Him to be a sufficient Lord, a sufficient King with which to put our trust. That's the decision before us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you spoke not only to Daniel's life, but to us through him. God, we're thankful, Lord, for how you demonstrate your character, not just in visions by telling us about it, but by your actions as well. Father, throughout history, throughout the scriptures in our own lives, you have shown yourself to be both sovereign and good. And we pray, Father, that, that would lead us to a kind of confident faith in you, that would cause us not to fear anything but you. That in reverence and awe, we would worship you with our lives, even in the most uncomfortable and unlikely situations. God, help us to know we can do that because you have shown yourself to be the ancient of days, the eternal sovereign king. God, who better to entrust our lives to? Be with us, God. Cause us to see who you are and put our confidence and our faith in you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.